welcome to a new episode of Strange Currencies. I'm your faithful host, Matt Waters. Um, I have done interviews on Strange Currencies, which have been very, very enjoyable. And uh, I've also done reflective episodes on albums, uh, or one album in particular, Connor Oberich Ruminations, which is tremendous. Uh, Salutations came out a couple months ago. Really, really great material. Uh, he, he, he's in a nice groove right now, writing wise. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing him, uh, in July, uh, Prospect Park. That'll be fun. Summer night. Concert on a summer night, man. Nothing wrong with that. You don't like that. I don't want to know you, pal. So in a similar vein, uh, in this episode, I'm going to focus on Oh Mercy by Bob Dylan. I thought this would be an interesting exercise to do the source material uh, which is the album itself, but also Chronicles. Uh, we have an artist who deeply meditated on what he had done years prior and put it in a manuscript. I know this has been done before, but uh, Dylan, Dylan <laughs> I was, I'm not going to hide from that. So I was to say Dylan. I combined Bob and Dylan. Dylan. That could have been it. That could have been the ticket, man. He, he was thinking of a proper name there uh, he actually mentioned that in chronicles that could have been it man billing uh i might have to copyright that myself. but anyway uh the way the detailed reflective way in which he describes the making of oh mercy from both the songwriting perspective and the studio perspective fascinating um and uh, it just lends another resource towards uh talking about this album uh which in addition to all that, it's also a fascinating album in the Dylan canon, in my opinion, because it represented a change in direction, conscious change in direction, uh, away from what he'd been trying to do for a while, I believe, uh, in his previous albums in the 80s, which were uh, the major works were Infidels and uh, M- Empire Burlesque. And, you know, I would task you... <laughs> Dear listener, with uh, listening to Infidels and uh, then listening to Oh Mercy, and it's such a different perspective. Um, it's a more empathetic. I wouldn't say. I mean, mature. It's a hell of a word to use. Um, it keeps coming to me, but I, I, I think just in the sense of having more less of an ax to grind, I suppose, with the listener in question. Uh, Who is you? Um, And the artist is having a relationship with with every listener. Um, There has to be some kind of universality going on. Um, Even if you're directly putting a group of people down and it's very specific, which which Dylan's done before, (laughs) other people have as well. Uh, Anyone can also relate to feeling aggrieved by a group of people. So there's always at least in most songs, I feel, uh, even in the personal, even in the specific, there's a universal going on, which is why music works and which is why literature works. Um, as you hear my dog barking in the background, um, Stella sees something really, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, didn't have much of a preamble here. Um, as to like where the hell I've been, uh, I had some papers to do uh, back in school. Uh, 
the eternal student uh, Raskolnikov uh, back, back at work. <laughs> um, and uh, they, they ended up going really well, but I had to put a lot into them, especially with my uh, plan that I have right now, my long-term goal and my long-term plan uh, requires me to put some decent papers together in the next year uh, while I'm getting ready to go on to another phase, um, pursuing my goal of being a, Mr. Jones, basically. <laughs> that basically is uh, what I'm shooting for at this point. I would love to be someone where something is happening and I don't know what it is, uh, which I always am. But uh, to be in a position where someone can look at me and feel like maybe I should know what's happening or I'm not making enough effort to know what's happening because I have attained a degree of uh, cultural import, uh, not in any kind of entertainment sense, but just in a sense of being someone who maybe should know something. Uh, so that's my goal right now, to be someone who know, should know something um, and doesn't. <laughs> that would, that's, that's kind of accurate, I feel like. Uh, a mongrel dog who teaches. I'm sorry, I'll stop now. Uh, <laughs> I'll try to stop. But uh, yeah, I did, I did have this, um, I had a few uh, kind of interesting coincidences happened to me. I mean, I went for a physical, uh, and the guy took a few days to get back to me with the results. And even if you're saying like, ha ha, like I'm good. I feel all right. Like there's, there's that monkey in the back of your mind who, who, uh, wants to like climb up a tree and, and do like beat up a tree or whatever and get out his anxiety. Cause he's, uh, just, a, a body. You know what I mean? And something could go wrong with said body. Um, and you want to know what the hell is going on. Um, so, you know, after a delay, uh, I got the results and everything was fine. And I found myself in a state of euphoria uh, a couple of days ago. I mean, do people talk about these like very minor incidences in life? I mean, in literature, yes. Uh, in songwriting to a degree. But yeah, you know, talking about like an emotional state, like just like relief, like, yeah. Like the story continues for now, and uh, I do have this time to you know think about doing a podcast about Oh Mercy. Uh, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful, man. It's wonderful to have time uh, to do stuff and to have a life, uh, really. So that kind of is, uh, was on my mind, and coincidentally, uh, a couple of days previous, I was driving down a street that I drove down. I drive down probably 20 times a week um, easily just routine uh it's where i go down down the block toward the boulevard to doing the things that uh that i want to do on that day i'm driving and you know you can bear right um for the slit in the road that takes you toward the avenue and um i'm driving this car's in front of me it's driving kind of slow I'm like kind of starting to zone out, but I'm going at like a relatively decent clip, you know, like maybe 30, 35. And we're almost tailgating just because the dude's going so slow. And um, I'm kind of slowing down and he speeds up and I kind of speed up. I'm like, all right, I can, you know, drive again. It, it seemed my impression was like, you know, when people are looking for an address and they're kind of like looking out the passenger side window at the houses and trying to make out like, where they are <laughs> and they're at the wrong house. And it seemed like that is what had happened. Um, so this guy speeds us like, I don't like, all right, like let's go, you know, like 
New York asshole here. I want to fucking drive, <laughs> you know, like, come on, I got not doing anything important, but I got to get, get there fast, you know? And, um, the dude, uh, after accelerating and I accelerate as well without warning, without putting his blinker on or anything, just suddenly the years, right. Um, and I, I find myself in a situation where I'm facing with my car, I'm facing the side the passenger side of this fellow's car. I'm going to collide right with it. Cause he did this like crazy ass out of nowhere turn. He didn't even really register what was going on around it <laughs> apparently. And, um, you know, it was like crazy. I was like, Whoa, like this is not good. <laughs> like this is not good at all. You know, I had about like a second to react and good thing. I did have that like second to react cause I veered along with his car so we kind of almost touch we're both you know tires squealing i know mine were and kind of like almost rubbing up against each other like going around the corner and i end up shooting by him uh, unscathed and uh in shock obviously (laughs) as happens when one of these things almost occurs you know like out of nowhere really throw you for a loop so I'm kind of just sitting in the middle of the road and I put my hand out the window. I'm like, I got to have a word. <laughs> like, you know, we just had a real intimate moment. Like we almost uh, crashed. It's like, <laughs> that's really, you know, that's as intense as it gets, right? Uh, he kind of stops uh, down the block and pulls over. So I made my way down and uh, lowered my window. Turns out, man, this kid, two kids, like, had to be no older than 18 you know and and he's kind of like looking down at the steering wheel and the friend's like not really like looking my way and like i'm just like hey (laughs) you know what i mean because i mean they might have thought that i was gonna like freak out you know but i wasn't uh because i immediately understood you know i'd been there man like i've pulled some moves you know that were insane like not intentionally like I never did anything like intentionally, and this wasn't intentional either. It was just a mistake. Uh, it was one of those things that happens, you know. Like uh, I can remember a couple. I mean, I remember I drove up the boulevard one way, I drove up the wrong way because I just wasn't. This was at like one o'clock in the morning, and thankfully there weren't any other cars around. But that happened to me once and other instances. So you know, we just had like a brief conversation, and. Um, you know, I was like, you know, you may want to like not do that. Like whatever that was, apparently they were looking for a parking spot, which is really odd. Uh, and, and they didn't see any on the street. And then he saw one suddenly saw one came into view while he's accelerating, decided just to pull like a movie maneuver into the spot. So I almost, lost, I, I suppose, I mean, I guess that could have been pretty gnarly, uh, had, had I not been able to pull the Mario Andretti and kind of like weave past, it was, it was pretty crazy. So like that happens with the physical and then, you know, I avoid a dodge bullet there and then the physical comes up. All right. Hence, I think the euphoria uh, a couple nights ago, just feeling like really manically happy, which does occur to me sometimes <laughs> along with uh, the, uh, the alternative uh, that occurs too. I've kind of begun to, to recognize too when this mania occurs, I'm, I'm uh, less trusting of it than I used to be. 
I remember I even up to, I mean, a year ago, I mean, it's taken me a lot of time to kind of like identify these things going on. Time, you know, therapy and, you know, um, just knowing yourself a little better, but definitely like talking about it, like definitely because you start to realize like, wait, you know, like, yeah, like, you know, like that feeling, you know, that feeling like I'm on top, totally on top of the world and everything is going great. Like, oh, like that might not be something to necessarily ride to the hilt. Um, Because if you don't ride that to the hilt, then you might be have less of a disposition to ride the uh, alternative to the hilt, which is, you know, obviously depression. (laughs) So like if you can recognize both things as being um, passing fancies, uh, passing spells, passing experiences, uh, you can try to stay a little bit more level. So like I, I did feel it. Uh, I felt like on top of the world, and uh, I did say like, well, this isn't entirely realistic, but I am happy that I am here and I can do my little little podcasts and the, the little other artistic things I do. Isn't that grand? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, you know, even speaking, not to make this a mental health podcast, but yeah, I mean having some consciousness of what's going on in your emotional state is good. It's a good thing, you know, and maybe recognizing like, wait, like, you know, I, I, I know I feel like you know, when I'm walking the sidewalks of Manhattan and uh, I have one of those things go on, it's very up and it's intense. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, you're in the city. Ah, you know, like everything's just like very there and uh, you feel on top of it. You're like not overwhelmed by it and it comes and goes uh i go the opposite direction so i'm doing a better job of uh, recognizing these things as the passing experiences that they are um so in addition the other interesting coincidental thing that seemed to form a thread uh from nowhere in, in my experience uh occurred to i was uh watching in cold blood for the first time it's randomly Yankees had this like hideous loss against the A's. Uh, Castro, you know, couldn't quite catch pop up. Catches it, they win. Drops, they lose. Finality, kind of. The whole game had been completely insane, and they're having like a streak of some rotten luck right now. And I, I just like I, I turned, didn't want to watch anything baseball related. Uh, turned on, uh, I think it was Cinemax, and then Cold Blood was on. I'd never seen it before. Very good film. And Benny Miller uh, has a style uh, at times it's a little muted. Um, it, it, for me, it can be like a little too muted. It can be a little too atonal uh, where, you know, someone can have a very heavy hand. I actually, to be honest with you, and I think this is kind of apparent <laughs> for anyone who's read my writing, uh, my fiction and anything else, like I, I prefer a heavy hand trying to say something up- to this uh, atonal thing and there's both in literature too uh yeah uh there's literature to a degree uh that's you know making such an effort not to say anything uh which is fine i mean if that's what you want to do is right you know the heavy hand when wielded irresponsibly can be you know poorly executed uh as well uh but i do prefer uh heavy hand because uh, a heavy hand who's on something is is really going to bring it out you know what i mean whereas you know this director and i like i mean i like this movie and i liked uh uh, moneyball uh 
I like, I'm a huge baseball fan, so like I'm, I'm an easy mark for that movie. But yeah, there were things about it I wasn't wild about. Uh, again, I think mainly from like that tonal standpoint, also like baseball nerd stuff that I feel like they didn't do a great job of portraying. And you might as well get that stuff right uh, in a baseball movie. Um, and uh, the film uh, Foxcatcher liked it a lot he's a great director uh, i think he's terrific uh but there are elements to his uh, approach that it's like i, I just kind of want to like reach into the screen and like shake the movie and be like like what like what is really going on here but i, I think that's the sense of capturing the atonal nature of uh, how reality is often um and things kind of like progressing and progressing and you know, I, all his movies do have a sense. Moneyball, uh, not Moneyball, actually had a very different structure, which is interesting. But yeah, I did see some similarity between In Cold Blood and uh, Foxcatcher and the way things like progress and slow burn, and it, like ends the way you 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 realize you should have seen it coming, and it, but it still catches you the the brutality of it. Um, so yeah, the guy. Guy doesn't need to take any advice from me, certainly. <laughs> but it was a good film, and I enjoyed it. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was great. Um, so I, I watched that. And I ended up looking into Capote a little bit, looking into his life. And randomly, uh, I read this uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald essay, The Crack Up, uh, which was really great. Uh, first part of it, very a, a bit too vague, in my opinion. And then he really gets it in the second and third parts. That essay, I believe it's three part essay. At least the version I read was brilliant. <laughs> digging into the male psyche, uh, digging into ambition. And uh, if you don't formulate a self beyond what you want to do, uh, there's an empty quality uh, going on there uh, that you're going to have to confront eventually because the nature of life is that your ambitions and desires never pay off in that full way that totally annihilates the self that you are and turns you into someone else, which is what you know, an ambitious person usually wants so that, you know, dance between annihilating and accepting yourself and avoiding the acceptance in favor of this like very punishing regiment of work. Um, you know, these are hugely important issues uh, still. I mean, they're not going anywhere in Western society. Uh, and he wrote about them amazingly well many, many years ago. And uh, it's sparkling work. Um, and I would really recommend it to anybody. Uh, it's an essay called The Crack Up. I believe Fleet Foxes uh, named their new album uh, after that essay, which is interesting. Uh, I like that band. Um, you know, I'm not like a massive fan, but they're they're good. Anyway, uh, digressions, digressions. Uh, just trying to get settled in here. Talk a bit. Get myself warmed up. But I do think we're ready. <laughs> I was going to say something else there. I don't know if anyone can read my mind or getting warmed up. That was some kind of portion of the podcast. I'll leave it to you to <laughs> figure out what I meant. Uh, I'm not going to go there. Uh, maybe later. But let's uh, let's get into this, man, because uh, I'm pumped to talk, to talk about Oh Mercy. Um, this is not only a very, very good album. I think... It fall, for me, it falls between being very good and great. Um, you know, I don't know sometimes what a great album is. I don't think I've listened to enough music to kind of like really have a clear delineation on that. Um, 
it's very, very good. I know that. And there are times where I'm listening to her. I'm like, fuck it, man. This is a great album. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this isn't a great album. I don't know what is a great album. But, um, you know, there's other times where I, I think there's element, you know, quite ironically, considering I was talking about Benny Miller's uh, directorial style, um, there, there's a quality to this album that I personally do find like a little guarded. It's a little, it's a little like Lazia is fair from the standpoint of having a drive, I suppose, of having like a real, like not even so much a message because that's, you know, such a generalized thing to say, but a thrust, like an authorial thrust going on. Um, that does, it does exist. Sometimes I feel like it's, it's percolating around the edges a little too much. Just in the, I think more, more so like in the, in the back half of the album and the arrangements, um, they're, they're a little cautious. I feel at times, um, where they could have maybe popped open a little bit more. Um, and that would be, I would say like, that would be like my critique of the album, I suppose. Um, I do think, you know, dignity's missed. I, I feel like in that vein, I feel like dignity is very jaunty, lively, colorful, fun song that I think really would have fit on here somewhere. Uh, the, in, the interesting aspect is wondering where it would have fit on the, the, tr- the track listing. Um, I actually, you know, I'll, I'll get to this more when I get to most of the time. I, f- I feel like Dignity should be on there instead of most of the time because uh, although it's a good song, uh, I don't know why, why it's on the album. Like, I don't know, like, in terms of, like, lining it up with uh, the, re- the rest of the songs from a, a narrative standpoint... And from a from the standpoint of like you know the songs, it's a straight love song, basically a straight song of missing a love, missing a lover, on an album that has like no other songs like that. Um, so like it, it it's it's hard to place it for me, even though it's a good song. And I, I think dignity, you know, whereas series of dreams, like you know, you always hear this about Bob Dylan albums when he leaves songs off like how do you leave off series of dreams well you tell me where <laughs> like like right you tell me where series of dreams fits uh in this album like where like the opening tracks so like the opening tracks like a statement of like kind of what the album's going for and that would have been a you know an untrue statement because the rest of the album's not like series of dreams thematically um, or instrumentally, I would say, because I feel like, you know, th- that that song needed kind of like a spacey arrangement uh, to work, a dreamlike arrangement, which I think you hear that kind of treatment on the Born in Time outtake, uh, which also wasn't used on the album. So I, I almost feel like, you know, it, it shouldn't be difficult for anyone to believe uh, <laughs> that, you know, a guy like Bob Dylan would go into a studio and, and have a moment where he's making two different albums because the guy's a, a prolific songwriter and you might have all these songs and they, and, and a couple of them could be the skeleton of another album. And I do feel like series of dreams and born in time. And I think most of the time, which, which snuck its way on there, um, probably should have been another album. Uh, that would have been great, <laughs> you know. Like, uh, sign me up. Like, I think you know, I think that album would have been fantastic. Um, but that happens, you know. Like, that's how 
you know, those decisions get made and, and they're a difficult decisions. But if you truly don't think that a song fits with what you're doing, you know, hold it because yeah, this is, this is a thing too. That's really, really ironic. And I, I can, you know, I wasn't there. <laughs> I wish I, I mean, obviously I wish I was, you know, I, I, <laughs> I would have taken being like one of the technicians that Daniel went a lot, like screams at it when things aren't going and going, <laughs> going great after he like smashes a guitar because Bob Dylan strolled in <laughs> and, and listened to what they had been doing like all night and didn't really like it. Um, you know, like I, I would, yeah, sign me up. Like, that'd be, that'd be great. I would, t- I would take that just to be there. But I, I really, the, the ironic thing is blind Willie McTell works on this album so well. It's insane. Whereas Again, like, you know, you're tempted to think if he puts this on Infidels, it elevates Infidels, which is true. But again, does it really fit on Infidels? Like, from my mind, you know, Don't Fall Apart on Me Tonight fits so perfectly into the aesthetic of the album. You know, like, like just the instrumentation and, like, what it's saying. Like, it's in, like, very well. It has that quality. So, you know, that kind of song, it's either going to probably lead off the album or close the album. It's like an epic song. Whereas um, here on Oh Mercy, I feel like Blind Willie McTell, perfect. You know, and that's why these artists hold these songs sometimes because they know they're going to make another album in the future and maybe they'll say to themselves, like, you know what? Like, this one might work on a different album. <laughs> you know, and it might work perfectly on a different album. So let me just hold it. I would imagine that's happened a few times. Because trust me, I mean, I do get mystified at times by you know like how things get like but if you really really like look if like especially like reading chronicles uh it really does take you inside the studio uh and and into like you know the considerations that are made you know into sequencing things and, and stuff like that and uh, especially like at this point in his career you know dylan didn't need to make any more albums he could have just kept touring forever without writing new music and going through you know, because a lot of times it's just sheer aggravation and frustration and, you know, probably a sense of like, why am I like doing this to myself? You know, I've already made great albums and I made albums that, you know, I thought were, were excellent and which kind of got ignored commercially and got by, you know, and critically. So like, what, what is the point of doing this? So like, there has to be a real authorial intent to what's going on. Um, and I think that was there. Um, and that is probably, you know maybe series of dreams isn't on there or maybe maybe you just didn't like the way it was recorded or whatever you know that's certainly possible but i'm just i'm throwing i'm throwing darts here but in reality and i i am going to deal with the songs in reality uh the album in reality I, i was thinking about going through uh the track listing and um and then at the end kind of tacking on uh, uh, series of dreams and uh, dignity, uh, you know, to my analysis. And I was like, nah, shooting star ends this album so perfectly, um, that to like continue, uh, going after that, it, I honestly, this is gonna sound dramatic and who gives a shit? <laughs> like, I'm just some guy in a room, you know, talking about this album, so who cares? But I do feel like it'd be a little insulting. Uh, to continue talking about the outtakes after talking about shooting star because and where what it does 
uh, at the end of this album is like pretty magical. I feel like, and I, I wrote uh, just kind of like a formal uh, response to it. Uh, <laughs> I gotta like laugh at that. Ah, uh, very uh, academic thing to say, I suppose. But what do you feel? Anyway, but yeah, in, in reality, you know, I'm dealing with the track listing that we got, the ten songs that we got. Um, but also, before I start, man. Um, I gotta talk about the cover too. Uh, the cover of this album, great. It was a uh, street art by this art- artist who called himself Trotsky. Uh, Dylan's walking in the city and he sees this this painting that's uh, on the wall uh, of a Chinese restaurant uh, on the side wall, you know, facing the the corner that he was coming from. Uh, you can look up the pictures of like how it used to look on Google. It's very very cool. It's such an awesome picture. It, it really is, but you know, it's it's basically you know you can look at it yourself, but it portrays a man in a suit, kind of frantically dancing. Uh, I, I think there's a, a look of I I interpret it like exhaustion, but determination on his face. Like he's like I am dancing, I am here, and you know, like I'm ignoring everything else about my life except for this moment right here where I'm trying to woo this woman who's quite interestingly portrayed, you know what I mean? Like as having a face, it almost looks like a half moon and a half sun, but very like intentionally crudely drawn. It's a very, very interesting image. And she's visibly swooning at at this man's very frantic you know, dare I say white dancing, you know what I mean? Like just this like bodily combustion of like limbs flying. And of course there's loads of like awesome white dancers in the world. And not every cultural cliche is true or none of them are true basically, obviously, but there, I do feel that element there, especially, you know, he's wearing a suit and he looks like he's wearing this like very nice pair of spectacles. And, um, you know, it's it's a really and you know in the background there's this like kind of aqua green like thing going on and they might be on a pier or they just I never kind of thought about it, but there there's an end to the floor uh, there's like an end to it kind of like it is a pier almost um, and yeah it's 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 really cool so, something I noticed about this and I've, I've I've looked at it loads of times before I was preparing uh, to do this episode but. You can interpret a giant penis going up the skies, and I, there's there's no other way of of putting it. it. It's 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 a phallic shape that kind of blends in to his suit, um, but there's a couple balls uh, where balls usually are, and it, and if you follow it up uh, beside his necktie, then once you see it that way, it's kind of hard not to see that all the time. Uh, but then again, you could interpret it be it could just be like his suspenders, um, you know what I mean? And like you've kind of like it, it, the 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 balls like are always there, uh, like you know the crotch is like very prominent, <laughs> like in the, in the, but like I never quite saw that before, and, and I and I was looking at it just you know like while listening to this album, like preparing to do this, I was like, whoa, like there's you know that's like a. Alice, like, and it actually goes up to where his heart is. 
So it's it's a really that's like a super super interesting image and a super interesting thought. You know the the almost like the desire in his heart. His heart is a heart of pure desire, and there's nothing else going on there other than his desire. And that's how I uh, take take it. Um, but you know, awesome. And you know the the man. You know, it's funny, Dylan. The man. I mean, what 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 is it? What am I talking about here? The man. His album art had been criticized quite a bit. Um, you know, like beforehand. This is an awesome cover. I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's a really cool piece of work. And you know, the funny thing is too. You know, looking at the woman in in, in the painting, um, the the way her face is drawn is a little Dylan esque. Not that I really know a lot about his art, but I think that's probably like purely a coincidental thing. Um, but like, if you look at the uh, Planet Waves uh, cover, for instance, um, there, I, the, you know, just the the you could see why he liked this so much. I I, I like it too. It's a really cool, cool, cool piece of work. That's gone, unfortunately. I got all excited because I. I did a Google uh, run of, of the image and uh, I saw the pictures where it was still there. And I was like, Oh my God, like I'm going to fucking go there. <laughs> like I want to, yeah, but it's, it's long gone. I believe it was painted over in 2011. So it lasted a long time. It lasted from uh, the late eighties uh, to 2011, but very cool. Very, very, very cool album art. And um, just had to like throw in my interpretation of it because it's, it's a really <clears throat> interesting interpretation uh, that I feel like is arrived at via the eye, not my mind. <laughs> you know, like my eye uh, suddenly saw this thing that's like hidden there in plain sight, kind of. Um, and even the uh, the lettering's really cool, like uh, Bob Dylan on top and the Old Mercy on the bottom. The the font there's like little like streaks, black streaks going through uh, the letters. Looks like worn. Uh, there's black on the borders. It's it's really it's a hell of a cover. It's got to be one of my favorite. Uh, covers. That's an interesting uh, topic. I mean, favorite album covers. I mean, there's some really good ones. Uh, Eric Clapton uh, Pilgrim is is, a, is in my opinion a very cool cover too. Uh, so anyway, uh, let's get into it. Uh, so we'll start with a political world, um, and what I'm going to do. I'm sorry if you hear my mouse clicking. It's like I'm doing a few things. I'm going to be turning pages and clicking mouses and whatnot. I'm going to read uh, passages from Chronicles um, preceding uh, song uh, to kind of, you know, you know, why not use it? Like it's great writing, you know what I mean? Like, and this is, this again was uh, part of the appeal for me of uh, doing this episode uh, using Chronicles as a resource. So let's talk about Political World, which was actually the uh, first song he wrote uh, for the album um, and was the first song he recorded, I believe. It was the first one recorded, too, I think. Uh, but that chronological quality to it is, is pretty cool, too. It's almost like, it's, again, a sense of drive going on. Like That's pivotal for any album. So let me just start reading from page 165 of uh, Chronicles. A song is like a dream, and you try to make it come true. They're like strange countries that you have to enter, 
You can write a song anywhere, in a railroad compartment, on a boat, on horseback. It helps to be moving. Sometimes people who have the greatest talent for writing songs never write any because they're not moving. I wasn't moving in any of these songs, not externally anyway. Still, I got them all down as if I was. Sometimes things you see and hear outside of yourself can influence a song. The song Political World could have been triggered by current events. There was a heated presidential race underway. You couldn't avoid hearing about it. But I had no interest in politics as an art form, so I don't think there, that's all there was to it. The song is too broad. The political world in the song is more of an underworld, not the world where men live, toil, and die like men. But the song, I thought I might have broken through to something. It was like you wake up from a deep and drugged slumber and somebody strikes a little silver gong and you come to your senses. There were about twice as many verses as were later recorded. Verses like, we live in a political world, flags flying into the breeze, comes out of the blue, moves towards you like a knife cutting through cheese. Now, I got to say something uh, about these outtakes that he provides. They're very, very interesting, but you're going to see a theme emerge connecting them. That's like very amusing. And it's almost enough to make you think he's putting you on, but I don't think so. But like the thing that's like interlocking them has to do with something specific of, and it's very amusing. Um, (laughs) Ends up being very amusing uh, in the outtakes he provides, I I feel. And uh, just moving uh, to page 130, well, 183, where they're cutting the song in the studio. The first song I took out of my note case was Political World, and we started looking for quick searching ways and how to do it. I didn't bring my own equipment, so I picked up one of Lanois' antiquated Telecasters. Wicked sounding if you're on a cement floor beneath a... Oh, oh. Corrugated. I'd never fucking use that word, and I didn't know how to say it. I know that's like... Probably a pretty common word, but <laughs> that stumped me for a minute. I didn't want to like totally mangle it and then act like I wasn't stumped by it for a second. Fuck that. I get stumped by words. What do you think? Whatever. <laughs> Tin roof. But in some cases, it could be too brittle. I like playing it, so I, so I stuck with it anyway. We tried political world a few different ways, and it didn't seem to be going anywhere. The sensation was always the same. The first way we tried was as good as the last, but some someplace along the line as the night wore on, Lanois got committed to a funk style. He heard one of Mason's licks. That's uh, Mason Ruffner, who uh, has written several really cool songs himself. And uh, really, by the way, I, I digress here, but this guy has a song with a music video where he's superimposed onto uh, the Twin Towers. And it's it's really cool. And I can say, like, you know, as a New Yorker, like, I, I like it and... I feel like, you know, the attempt to like any attempt to like airbrush, you know, the Twin Towers out of like films and, and it's, it's total bullshit, you know, like just keep it. And that's it was there. And what happened happened. And that's reality. And some people, you know, thought the Twin Towers were, were pretty cool, you know, like musicians like Mason Ruffner who used it, you know, to make a pretty, pretty cool, fun uh, music video. Uh, I believe Dancing on Top of the World was the title of the song. Uh, so yeah, and, and stuff like that, like it doesn't like, you know, obviously like I didn't lose anyone or, or anything you know, on, on the day that, that happened. I, I didn't know people who were like there and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, like, I don't know, man, like let's deal with reality. Like let's not like airbrush history and just 
because we might have to deal with like an uncomfortable moment and stuff like that. Uh, anyway, uh, digression. <laughs> uh, yeah, he heard one of Mason's licks and decided to put the whole song on it. By then, I was hearing the song differently than I had when I started. Playing it out had brought me to different conclusions, that the lyrics might work better in fragmented rhythms, and that I could lose a lot of the verses and add a differently arranged part. But at that time, I didn't know what the part could be. Now, that's really, really interesting. Um, yes, like to think about the song, like having more of a defined chorus, um, but... At the same time, I feel like it could have got campy <laughs> if it would have had a because, like the like as he mentions, like the political world is something underground. It's something well, not entirely of our world, but maybe something controlling our world. But the average person, it kind of like brushes by them uh, while totally affecting their life and everything they do. But kind of uh, not being present is more of like a shadow figure. Uh, going on so like if you put like a big chorus on top of the song i, I think you might lose uh that sense of it uh which is like where how it originated so these are these are like the difficult decisions uh that have to take place because you could you could chop that song up and make it into something different um and that's what ha- those are the decisions that need to be made uh which is why recording an album is difficult so i was trying to figure out the realities of what danny had in his mind what he had to work with I couldn't do that in just one day or just one session. To make a record anywhere, anytime with anyone is possible, but the reality is rare. You have to be surrounded by musicians of a like pur- purpose. There were methods I would have instinctively used in the past with a song like this, but here they wouldn't have worked. Long time ago, good. Now, no good. Uh, so <laughs> that's also very, and that, that left me wondering uh, what methods he was maybe, dis- and, and, the method that I, I could think of uh, possibly would be just reworking it on the fly while also maintaining the sensibility of it. But that was something, you know, especially if you listen to the cutting edge, say um, where he was just like, bring, you know, a song like, just like the one, just, <laughs> just like, just like a woman always uh, pops to my mind when I think about that, where he basically just worked that bridge in the studio it almost like reminded me of the way a rapper works, you know, like Jay-Z, you know, basically walking in and like, I got this idea and like, let's just bang it out. Let's just put it together. Words are going to come and we'll, we'll put it together. Um, so that may have been a method he was referring to, but he, he doesn't like expressively like, like get, get to that, but it's, it's another interesting thing to consider. Um, so yeah, my, my thoughts on this song, um, is that it's pretty dark <laughs> and it's actually, um, it's darker. I, I found myself more in touch with the darkness of the song when I wrote down a couple of lyrics, like as notes. Um, but you can travel anywhere and hang yourself there. That's a dark, that's like a dark line. Now the, the song goes like it's, it's a quick moving song. It's a very, you know, like, rapid delivery it's not you know on the level of um subterranean homesick blues uh it's like you know slower than that but it's it's also still fast in its own right um life is in mirrors death disappears up the steps into the nearest bank Uh, we all know for sure that it's real you know those are lines uh that 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 like 
jumped out to me. And again, they, they have that quality of this thing being real, but also being elusive too. Uh, you know that it's there, but you also can't wrap your hand around it and find your place in it. But you do have a place, but maybe you're not sure where that is. And it's also everywhere. Um, and that, yeah, that line, travel anywhere. I think it also refers to like being in the modern world. You know, we have these utilities, you know, if you're a person of you know, relative wealth, you know, like where you can travel or, you know, going further beyond 1989 when the movie came out, like you can travel like on the internet. Like there's all, there's all these horizons, but are they, you know, are traveling toward these horizons or within these realms, like adding up to happiness, uh, contentment? It, it doesn't seem so. In fact, it seems the opposite at times. Having all these options at your disposal uh, doesn't bring you anywhere closer to an understanding of yourself or this political world that you're living. I mean, the line is right there. It's the first line. We live in a political world, you know, um, we all know for sure that it's real. Something I noticed about the song too. And I, I think it might've struck me from reading the book. It's maybe not something that I would have noticed. It ends on a very abrupt note. It just kind of ends, you know, it fades out, which kind of maybe indicates to me that <laughs> They didn't quite know how to end the song, possibly. Um, you know, like it ends with that. That is a very distinctive line, you know, shout God's name, and you're not even sure what it is. It's it's a strong line, but it it doesn't like I don't feel like announce itself as a definitive ending to the song. It's, you know, the song doesn't really have a a suggestion for how to live in the political world or how to um you know, operate in the political world. Uh, and it doesn't need to, uh, it's simply describing it, but in, in that mode, without there being like an agent in the song, you know, like a, a person like in the song, um, it, it ends up being like a description basically that could just continue going on and on and on because you're, you're kind of just describing scenery. Uh, so, it, and I think that's the uh, explanation for me in my, in my opinion, like the song ending like a bit abruptly, a bit suddenly, almost randomly. Like it could have ended on the God's line or it could have ended on another line. So in that way, it's it's balanced, uh, but maybe could have been more satisfactory in some kind of way. Uh, but it still is like a good you know, piece of work. It's, it's, it's a fun, you know, dark song. Uh, I always like darkness. So moving along to where teardrops fall. Uh, again, we'll start with uh, a reading. Uh, and this is a particularly cool uh, reading from uh, Chronicles, how the song came to be. At about three in the morning, we had played ourselves out and just started playing any old stuff. Jambalaya, Cheatin' Heart, There Stands the Glass, country classics, just fooling around, playing like we were on a party boat. Two of Dan's engineers had been changing shifts since the beginning and had been a hot, hot and sweaty all night. I was wearing a blue flannel shirt and was soaked through. Sweat was pouring off my face. In the midst of all this, I played another new song I had written, Where Teardrops Fall. I showed it quickly to Dopsy and we recorded it. It took about five minutes and it wasn't rehearsed. In the finale of the song, Dopsy saxophone player John Hart 
played a sobbing solo that nearly took my breath away. I leaned over and caught a glimpse of the musician's face. He'd been sitting there the whole night in the dark, and I hadn't noticed him. The man was the spitting image of blind Gary Davis, the singing reverend that I'd known and followed around years earlier. What was he doing here? Same guy, same cheeks and chin, fedora, dark glasses, same built, same height, same long black coat. The works. It was eerie. Reverend Gary Davis, one of the wizards of modern music. Like he'd been raised upright and was watching over things, keeping constant vigilance over what was happening. He peered across the room at me in an odd way, like he had the ability to see beyond the moment, like he'd thrown a rope line out to grip. All of a sudden, I know that I'm in the right place, doing the right thing at the right time, and Lanois is the right cat. Felt like I had turned a corner and was seeing the sight of God's face. Ow! <laughs> now... Uh, as cool as that uh, writing is, you know, in the hindsight of, you know, analyzing how the song came to be, the song is uh, even better. Uh, the song is awesome. Uh, I, I love this song. Um, I think, you know, it's close to being my favorite song on the album. Uh, it's very sincere. Uh, it's a tender song. And I really, I had a breakthrough myself uh, listening to the song years ago, I was driving, uh, on Northern Boulevard, uh, probably driving home from college and, uh, listening to Dylan obsessively and probably listening to Salem obsessively. And, you know, it's two minute, 33 second song, uh, that, you know, yeah, like it seems like it's pretty easy to diagnose like what it, what it does. But I was really struck by this idea of where teardrops fall, which is, you know, he did where teardrops fall. And I was struck, like, I had this thought, like, meta metaphysically almost, like, right, like, you know, teardrops, they, they come from your eyes, roll down your face, they fall, and they, they kind of slide down your cheeks, and, you know, they fall somewhere. And, you know, to, to write a song about a place, the place where these tears go like where these fallen tears go uh that have like come from your eyes and you know, conjured by some kind of you know deep emotion that, that you're feeling you know, deep sense of panic or despair or you know uh bittersweet happiness or, or joy you know like where's the place where these go um like obviously in a literal sense you know <laughs> in a less fun sense you know they, they fall and they land wherever you are at the, at the given moment. But right, like metaphysically, you know, like there's something about tears and, and crying and the, the intensity of the moment that fades and, and, and gets turned, you know, your, your, your senses return to normal and life gets back to normal. It stabilizes. Um, and the tears are almost forgotten in a way. The moment you cry isn't talked about. That's that's an obvious thing. You know, twelve years old at a party and you feel anxious and uncomfortable. You start crying and you cry and everyone's like, "What's going on with this person?" Um, and then and then the moment's over and you know it's gone and you want it to be over and everybody. So, like in this sense too, teardrops are, are can be a forgotten thing. Um, and I think uh, the song both captures that metaphysical like place of of and also. Also, like in a literal sense, too, 
the place you go where teardrops. So there's also like a literal like safe place. Maybe you can go to cry. So it really hits on, you know, in two minutes and 33 seconds, uh, fascinating, like poetic, uh, ideas at play. And again, you know, as he describes in Chronicles, the instrumentation is perfect. The, the sax. So at the end of the song is, is per- and like you, you don't expect, I guess to hear it maybe the first time, like, it's like, Oh, like saxophone, you know, like I, you know, not, not even instrument that, uh, Dylan has used like a lot, you know, like he's used, you know, definitely like street legal pops right into my head as, you know, saxophone going on, but it's, uh, it works, you know, and, um, that's kind of like how I, how I feel about the song. The the other thing I, I feel too, is that this song even though it might seem like, again, this kind of like easy two minute, 33 second thing, this song is so exclusive to, to Oh Mercy. I feel uh, there, there's a Dylan at play here, you know, that's different again from Dylan on Infidels or Empire Burlesque. Um, and certainly, you know, for his genius, <laughs> I, would, I don't know what other word, you know, to use there, or you could say his, um, ability his great ability to churn out great songs uh, in the 60s that guy couldn't write this song uh, that guy couldn't perform he couldn't get to the empathetic place that this where the song is it's a very empathetic song that is tender uh toward uh the the people crying the person crying um and that's all over this album this um different guy you know this it's not, and it's not a soft, you know, like I'm sure, you know, he probably like had maybe studio uh, or not studio, I'm sorry, uh, re- record executives or whatever. They're like, Hey, like lighten up a little, <laughs> like, you know, or reporters. I mean, I remember, you know, in the Kurt Loader interview, when uh, Infidels came out, he was talking about the cover of Infidels and they like, you know, just really think that was like the best cover. Cause you know, he looks like a little like mean and I don't think so. I think he just kind of cool like on the cover of, of infidels but loader was you know saying like you know you've been coming off as like very judgmental in your recent work and this you know cover kind of like is like you seem like you're sneering um so like there's a sense of like hey bob you know like no but i think he needed to do it on his own terms artistically where the the empathy here isn't a phony empathy it's not a soft empathy this is a hard earned hard considered you know thought out sense and the songs are there you know like songs it's not cheap it's not you know uh you know easy peace and love thing nothing wrong with that but i think you know he always kind of stood in stark contrast and you know probably contempt to that not in terms of the ideas at play but maybe the people you know wanting things from him and wanting him to kind of represent this thing that he wasn't really you know didn't feel akin to um so it, it's not, it's not just like merely, you know, kind of like him giving in to like what people may have wanted out of him. It's real. Like it's a, it's a genuine, genuine is, is the word. And again, you know, that is, you know, the cool thing about artists progressing, you know, your favorite work by an artist might've been 20 years ago and that's all well and good or 30 years ago or whatever, but they might be able to do things now at the moment that they're working on this current album that they weren't able to do uh you know back then um so 
And that's something you might miss. Like if you're not like giving it, giving it a go, um, they might be able to write even just one song with a perspective that couldn't have been that back, you know, when, you know, they were supposedly like at their best or whatever, um, or things were falling into place better. Cause that's, that's a part of it too, you know, like things falling into place. So yeah, man, like that's kind of how I feel about it. I think it's a terrific, terrific song. Uh, there's more in the book about, you know, how they try to do it again. Um, and they couldn't capture the magic of this particular take and rightly so they ended up just going with, with that one. Um, so moving along, uh, to everything is broken. We'll again start with something from Chronicles. Another song, Everything is Broken, was made up of quick choppy strokes. The semantic meaning is all in the sound of the words. The lyrics are your dance partner. It works on a mechanical level. Everything is broken or it looks that way, chipped, cracked, in need of repair. Things are broken, then rebroken, made into something else, then broken again. Once when I was lying on the beach in Coney Island, I saw a portable radio in the sand, a beautiful General Electric self-charging built like a battleship, and it was broken. I could have remembered that image at the top of the song, but I had seen a lot of other things broken too. Bowls, brass lamps, vessels and jars and jugs, buildings, buses, sidewalks, trees, landscapes. All these things, when they're broken, make you feel, feel ill at ease. I thought of all the best things in the world, the things I had a great affection for. Sometimes it might be a place, a place to start an evening from and go all night. But then there are these, pla then these places become broken too and can't be pieced back together. There's a smashing and crashing of furniture and glass. Something just breaks and gives no warning. Sometimes your dearest possession, it's beastly hard to fix anything. There are extra verses for this too. Broken strands of prairie grass, broken magnifying glass. I visited the broken orphanage and rode upon the broken bridge. I'm crossing the river, going to Hoboken. Maybe over there, things ain't broken. That was my bit of optimism to go along with a song like this. These then and some other songs I wrapped up and put them away to stay where they lay and kept them in a drawer, but I could sense their presence. I just want to read this one other part too. In time, my hand got right and it was ironic. I stopped writing songs. He started writing Oh Mercy just because his hand was injured. <laughs> Otherwise, this album wouldn't exist. I mean, he was planning a tour before he hurt his hand. Wasn't going to go into the studio and wasn't going to write anything. Hurts his hand, starts writing the songs. And like he mentions, ironically, hand healed and he couldn't write at that particular moment <laughs> again. Uh, so that's another interesting thing. Um, the thing that strikes me, I think, about this song is that um, it's not, I'm not going to, you know, say everything is broken as, you know, a huge Bob Dylan song, um, you know, or anything like that. But I do think it, it's a return to uh, observation uh, that's opposed to confrontation. Uh, you know, like I, you look at like infidels, for instance, uh, particularly uh, I'm not trying to pick on infidels or anything like that, but merely, you know, pointing out the difference, you know, like you have a song like Union Sundown or uh, Man of Peace. And there are these songs that kind of like hound you, hound you, hound you with, you know, like, you know, this sentiment that, you know, society's uh, stray. Uh, and which is true, you know, like, you know, the values aren't there, you know, things aren't being made here, but, you know, on and on and on. 
you know, and I'm almost tempted to say like, blah, 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 because like they're one dimensional really. Uh, and that's just the truth of it. Um, whereas, you know, something like this song, it, it's an, it's an observation of the world opposed to a decree against it or a, a litany of uh, things that are wrong. And the, 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 the interesting, you know, or ironic thing is that, you know, this isn't complimentary song to the, to the world around everything is broken but it's way more artistic because it's not blaming <laughs> it just seems like it's pointing to the nature of things being broken uh so in that sense i feel like even maybe you know you could call it like a minor song or whatever uh i'm sure there's differing opinions on it i know you know uh, leonard cohen loved the song and referenced it you know uh in, in one of his songs and i know uh, mike scott covered it uh on the water boys uh, world tour i think in 89 or 90 so plenty of people think this is a pretty uh, great song i i think it's good you know like i and uh if nothing else again like it's it's observational whereas things in in previous work weren't <laughs> you, you know that overly concerned with kind of artistically assessing things like you know a visual artist might you know that line you know again sticks out in, in the book where he's talking about this broken radio you know in the sand like you can see it you know it's visual it's a visual description and although that's not like specifically in the song it inspired the song in a way so you're working off this visual basis opposed to you know kind of trying to just like go after um, and you know, the, the funny thing is too, like, you know, people, again, I say like, you know, picking on infidel. I mean, the guy's written, you know, so many songs, the guy's written like a ton of, ton of songs. I, he does have songs like on, you know, the times they are changing, which, which are kind of, you know, just railing, you know, and it doesn't mean like the song's like not good. I, I just, I find those songs not as interesting myself, uh, cause they're not based like, and they're based more in a realm of. I don't know, like, you know, like it's, it's art, obviously it's a song, but it's, it's there, I guess there, I feel less of an observer there. And I think that's, you know, the Dylan that I'm, you know, enjoy the most, maybe the, you know, the describer, <laughs> you know, a guy who's like describing things, you know, like, yeah, like, so we go, uh, we go to uh, ring them bells and, I apologize for the clicking. I usually um, avoid clicking and typing and stuff like that, but I'm I'm in deep here. I should have had this up before I started. It's just my mistake. But I just wanted the lyrics in front of me. Mm. But the first verse of this song is amazing. <laughs> it is like the the first um, verse of the song is something else. I'm just gonna. Ring them bells, ye heathen, from the city that dreams. Yeah, and just in that one line, there's a interesting dichotomy um, between heathen and yet heathen is in the city that dreams. You know, again, that's di that's dimensional. You know, that's not merely judgmental. You know, it's the heathen is in this dreaming city, um, and. and ringing the bells for hope and everything. So, you know, like, yeah. Anyway, continuing. Ring them bells, ye heathen, from the city that dreams. Ring them bells from the sanctuaries across the valleys and streams. 
where they're deep in their wide and the world is on its side and time is running backwards and so is the bride. Now, the thing that really sticks out about this verse to me is how it's all connected. And that's hard to do. But in the sense of ring them bells from the city that dreams across the valley and the streams, then he goes for their deep and their wide, referring to the valleys and the streams directly from the previous line. And the world is on its side and time is running backwards. And so is the bride. So that's pretty wild because it's almost suggesting a flood without specifically saying so. But if the world's on its side and the valley and streams are wide, they're obviously going to tip over. So there's maybe an impending flood and that's all connected. And that's like from a songwriting standpoint, like you can come up with really good lines, uh, but to connect them all in the, in the same verse and have that verse tell a little story of imagery in and of itself is um, it's hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where, you know, the, the, the rest of the song, I feel isn't as, you know, put together. That first, but that first verse is it's great. Obviously, it's a terrific song. It's not a song. The interesting thing about it is it's, it's not a song I think about often uh, or that I say, like, you know, when I'm just, like, sitting down on YouTube and I'm like, you know, I'm listening to some Dylan right now. And I never really think of uh, Ring Them Bells uh, for whatever reason. Um, maybe, like, it's possible, like, he, he describes um, in Chronicles, um, you know, desiring know maybe like a different arrangement uh possibly um and that could you know maybe like a different arrangement but the arra- the arrangement that they use on the album fits you know and the song you know com- comes across um and again i think it's rooted in a sense of empathy um you know why ring the bells <laughs> you know what i mean like you know if people can't be saved uh, and the world can't be saved that's it. And why ring the bells? Uh, so I think he, he's again demonstrating he's arrived at a different perspective uh, during the writing uh, of uh, the, the album. Um, and also uh, another interesting thing is um, talking about innocence. Um, at the end of uh, third verse, Ring them bells for the time that flies. And this part actually starts really soaring on the recording. This is like the song really like takes off like right here. Um, Ring them bells for the time that flies for the child that cries when innocence dies. Now, I defy you, uh, dear listener, to argue that again, Dylan at the top of his game, which everyone says is the 60s, would write those lines and they're great lines and it's an excellent song. So, you know, innocence, you know, innocence, like this, no man, like this guy, the only way he talk about innocence earlier during that time period would be innocence, turning on a person and leaving them in an extremely vulnerable situation. Um, but there wasn't a quality of simply mourning innocence as something that someone loses or a child loses, you know, or the child that cries when innocence dies. And it does, you know, it's, it's true. Um, and that 
is inarguable, but how a person kind of reacts uh, to, to such things occurring or you know, observe such things occurring is going to unwind the kind of you know, artistic statement they're going to make. Now, I love Dylan in the 60s. Oh, no kidding. Like, who doesn't? <laughs> but I, I just think, again, you know, it's, it's interesting that he's doing things here. While, you know, he also mentions in Chronicles Land was, you know, saying like, you know, any songs like those, you know, like Chimes of Freedom uh, or something, which, by the way, is an optimistic song, you know, for the more cynical <laughs> Dylan, you know, is, you don't have to look too far like a Rolling Stone. I mean, is, you know, did the girl in that song have innocence? Um, what were her travails mourned? No. Is the song one of the best songs ever written? Of course. I mean, I'm not suggesting like, hey, go back and rewrite. But, you know, that's the point, you know, and that's probably what he wanted to scream at Lanois without, you know, mentioning, so, you know, being able to mention the specifics. But, you know, it's the sense of like, I can't, you know, maybe go back and rewrite like Rolling Stone or write a fucking song like that again because I'm not that person anymore. But here's something I can do now you know, and appreciate, you know, like really like, cause it's good, you know, it's damn good, you know, it's damn fine song. And uh, I guess maybe, maybe why it doesn't pop, pop to me when I'm randomly like looking, you know, for something Dylan to listen to is, is maybe cause it's, um, uh, an exception and a good exception in the catalog that you remember when you pop on Oh Mercy. Oh yeah. Like, you know, he was doing this like different thing here. Like he's doing this thing of like, you know, innocence dies and like, you know, kind of mourning that and ring the bells for, for the lost, you know, it's easy <laughs> to get lost, you know, like, and whereas, you know, like Rolling Stone was like almost kind of celebrating, you know, the, the fall of this person and then having like nothing else to lose and like, let's go like revel, you know, both in the, the person's struggle, uh, but also like kind of in the way they've been freed from their obligations. I don't think it's like so one-sided that it's just like, Hey, like, it's great that your life's fucked up. You know, like, I, I think there's like more going on there. There's that very like 60 sense of like, all right, like you're now free, like a rolling stone. Like, let's do it. Like, let's live, you know? Uh, but you know, here, yeah, there's something very different going on i could also see where someone wouldn't be into it they'd be like ah it's fucking lame you know like innocence that dies like this ain't the dylan i want you know but it's the dylan you got on this and i think it's damn good too so Measly little seven game losing streak. Uh, when I get a chance to watch these two guys uh, apply their trade on a consistent basis, just want them to stay healthy and watch them for a full season. So, uh, anyway, uh, back to um, uh, music, goddammit, because uh, this is serious shit, man. Come on, man in the long black coat, uh, which is what I'm up to. And uh, yeah, they don't come more rock'em, sock'em serious than this song. Uh, I find this to be a brilliant song. Um, I think 
there's when you listen to the album in sequence, um, there's a great juxtaposition between man in a long black coat and ring them bells. Um, I think one song is about hope in the face of despair, which is uh, ring them bells, hope in the face of innocence being lost. And also someone needing to make an active effort in actually ringing the bell. Like it's, it's an active thing. It's a decision you have to make. Uh, in the face of uh, all these problems. Um, whereas Man in the Long Black Coat says, well, uh, that is true, and innocence does get, does, <laughs> does die, and, you know, get perverted, whatever, whatever you may prefer. Um, so who or what is the force uh, responsible um, I, and I think, I think that's, that's all that I don't know if that I'm sure I'm probably sure, you know, to this degree that I'm specifying it in my weird, weird way. I, I don't know, uh, if they put like that amount of, you know, they might've just figured, Hey, these two songs are seem a little opposed and in sequencing this interesting, but it's pretty powerful. Uh, when, when you listen to them, uh, side by side, it's, it's, it's like, you know, ultimate good against possibly ultimate evil. Although, in my recent listen to the album, I, I had a bit more of a complicated reaction to the song because I always assumed it was a straightforward murder ballad with, you know, great lyrics, great production, instrumentation, everything perfect. You know, perfect song. It was like, you can't even think of another way you would do the song. They, they got it totally right. Um, but from, from a, a narrative standpoint or a thematic standpoint, I did find myself considering uh, alternate scenarios for what the song is about. I think part of it was reading Chronicles and reading what Dylan thinks of the song, uh, which which kind of con- is you know it conflicts with thinking of it as a, a straightforward murder ballad. Um, I, I think, and that kind of made me reconsider it, and I came up with a conclusion. Um, but anyway, uh, let me refer to Chronicles uh, as I've been doing as it pertains to uh, man in a long black coat. Check it out. Page 215. We recorded man in a long black coat, and a peculiar change crept over the appearance of things. I had a feeling about it, and so did he. That's Lanois. And they didn't agree on much, so... <laughs> that's pretty good, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's... Uh, I, I can understand that. It is, like, basically... It's just, man, it's very there. Very, very there. It couldn't be more there, you know. The chord progression, the dominant chords and key changes gave it a gave it the hypnotic effect right away. Signal what the lyrics are about to do. The dread intro gives you the impression of a chronic rush. Reduction sounds deserted, like the intervals of the city have disappeared. It's cut from the abyss of blackness, visions of a maddened brain, a feeling of unreality. The heavy price of gold upon someone's head. Nothing standing, even corruption is corrupt. Something menacing and terrible. The song came nearer and nearer, crowding itself into the smallest possible place. We didn't even rehearse the song. We began working it out with visual cues. Before the lyrics even came in, you knew that the fight was on. This is Lanois land and couldn't have been coming from anywhere else. The lyrics try to tell you about someone whose body doesn't belong to him. Someone who loved life but cannot live 
and it rankles his soul that others should be able to live. Any other instrument on the track would have destroyed the magnetism. After we had completed a few takes of the song, Danny looked over to me as if to say, this is it. It was. I wasn't sure that we had recorded any historical tunes like what we had wanted, but I was thinking that we might have gotten close with these last two. Man in the Long Black Coat was the real facts. In some kind of weird way, I thought of it as my I Walk the Line, a song I'd always consider to be up there at the top, one of the most mysterious and revolutionary of all time, a song that makes an attack on your most vulnerable spots, sharp words from a master. I always thought that that Sun Records and Sam Phillips himself had created the most crucial, uplifting, and powerful records ever made. Next to Sam's records, all the breasts sounded fruity. On Sun Records, the artists were singing for their lives and sounded like they were coming from the most mysterious place on the planet. No justice for them. They were so strong, it can send you up a wall. If you're walking away and look back at them, you could be turned into stone. Johnny Cash's records were no exception, but they weren't what you expected. Johnny didn't have a piercing yell, but 10,000 years of culture fell from him. He could have been a cave dweller. He sounds like he's at the edge of the fire or in the deep snow or in a ghostly forest, the coolness of conscious, obvious strength, full tilt and vibrant with danger. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine, indeed. So with that being said, I mean, what I, I feel like, what am I really adding? <laughs> Like, I feel like I could have maybe done like a bare bones introduction and then just like read um, the passages. But here's maybe something that you might find interesting for me. I know it's kind of not much compared to that. <laughs> but um, this song, uh, I, I mentioned, you know, I, I felt like Blind Willie McTell uh, maybe would have fit uh, on this album. Uh, I, I also felt like this song in turn, in some kind of weird theory or relativity relativity way i really reminds me of something off of john wesley harding especially uh the ballad of frankie lee and judas priest but i feel like it's better uh than the ballad of frankie lee and judas priest and that is a fantastic song i love that song it's an awesome song but i do feel like man in the long black coat is is better because the stakes are higher there's a victim of a crime opposed to a self-destruction happening where if you remember uh the narrator in uh, the Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest is kind of seduced by his neighbor's lifestyle and, and wants to live that life and doesn't really consider uh, the consequences of it. Uh, and, to, and it's too late, you know, and the little neighbor boy is c carrying him out and he never really made sense of anything or understood why he kind of was doing what he was doing. I mean, that is how I kind of take that song. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a very clever song about um, gear pressure uh, in the way that peer pressure is often derided as being something obvious that you point out to kids or whatever, like they'll make fun of it. And then it, it's happening, <laughs> you know, and it's like affecting their, your behavior. If you are, you know, young or, or anyone's uh, behavior and the guy in the song is an adult, but I, I think it, it made me reflect, uh, in my own like experience on that kind of thing, like unconscious changes in your behavior, radical uh, changes of your behavior um, that you're not considering uh, at the time that they're going on. And it's a great song, but I, I do feel this song has a leg up because someone is being victimized without, whereas, like I said, like that song, the guy's kind of destroying himself 
whoring <laughs> in the house uh, with the four by twenty windows. Um, in this song, it's it's a it's it's a woman. Uh, I don't know. Well, it, it kind of does have to be a woman. You know, she went with the man along black hope, but I, I do feel like the listener, uh, whether a man or a woman might feel like they could be seduced or have already been seduced by the man in the long black coat and makes you kind of consider who, who is, uh, the man in the long black coat, you know, a demon lover. I mean, that that's one of the interpretations. Um, but I also, you know, when I, when I listened to the track, uh, before I, I did this podcast, uh, the, the end of it had way more of an effect on me um, than, than it usually does uh, when he's talking about, you know, people don't live or die. People just float. The great line. And, and there's another great line. Uh, you know, there are no mistakes in life. Some people say it's true. Sometimes you can see it that way. I mean, th- these are very uh, definite lines. You know, every man's conscience is vile and depraved. Uh, I'm not going to read the sun pie section, which I think about <laughs> often. I don't think about it like, you know, a ton, but like whenever I do think about the sun pie section in Chronicles, I'm like, what was going on there? Um, I do think it connects with the man in the long black hole. I think he's demonstrating how you get lyrical ideas and, you know, the things people say can kind of form their own stories and sun pies and the man in the long black coat. Uh, but something he said uh, inspired something. Uh, and I think it's a demonstration of that. Uh, it's very, very interesting. You know, that's where the line came from. You know, a couple of lines in the song kind of came out of uh, Sun Pai's mouth. Uh, but especially, you know, uh, consciousness being depraved. Um, and he had, he had some other really, it's a definitely evocative. Um, and it leaves no doubt that Dylan, you know, had he gone in the direction of being a fiction writer, you know, that would have been, you know, that might've been a real scene or that might've been real, uh, his interaction with that fellow. Uh, but you know, the fictional techniques, uh, used, uh, are fantastic, you know, you know, in that particular scene. Um, uh, but anyway, um, that was interesting too, but those lines at the end of the song left me considering, and I could be just really taking a, a shot in the dark here, but I almost feel like there's even more going on than meets the eye of, you know, who is the man in long black coat? What happened to the girl? You know, these kind of murder ballad questions. I think it's an open question whether anything even happened to the woman. I think there's a question in this song about what people are afraid of and why are people scared of the man in long black coat? Now, from the language that Dylan was using, you know, there's obviously, I think there was some kind of a sinister <laughs> characterization going on, but I, I think you can if you want to. And I did for a moment and I found it kind of like an exciting way of looking at the song. Um, consider whether the people who are floating through life, you know, people don't live or die. People just float. Like, why, why mention that? Uh, maybe for the possibility that the girl simply went with the man in a long black coat and gave her heart to the man in a long black coat and they're just together. <laughs> and like it was this outsider in the town who came and no one really knew who he was and he was different from them and maybe more exciting than them in some kind of a way and he was more alive than them in some kind of a way. 
I think that really matches up with, I feel, with what he's saying about, uh, you know, it being his, I walk the line and having that kind of connotation. I don't know if it's self-descriptive, but I do think it's about an outsider. Um, and I think he can relate to being an outsider in a town um, and everyone looking at him, you know, almost fearfully, like not, you know, it could be that the man in the long black coat isn't even bad per se, but just the vibration he's giving off perhaps is so alien to the people around him that they, they're terrified of him. And perhaps the girl almost had a courage, um, where maybe she was bored with the people she was around and went with the man in the long black coat and never thought twice about it, never regretted it. You know, there's the imagery at the beginning of the song of, you know, there's a soiled cotton dress, uh, which could indicate something had fallen, uh, you know, and it's a very nice narrative uh, touch using that line early in the song, maybe suggesting an ending in the beginning of the song. But it also just could be a soiled dress. It maybe doesn't belong to the girl in question. Um, and I do think, you know, opening the song up in that way, I think is, you know, interesting and, you know, to consider whether you're a person um, who's floating um, opposed to living and maybe the man in a long black coat is living. Like there's a line, you know, there's dust on him. He's a, he's a man who walks in the world, you know? Um, hey, you know, like this could be totally off. You know, it, it could just be a murder battle for sure. But I, I just think the mere fact that you can dive into the song so deeply <laughs> speaks volumes about it. And again, um, I don't know if I'm doing justice to, you know, just how good it sounds. Obviously, I can't play it. Um, copyright and stuff like that. But um, other thing uh, before I before I go and, and move on uh, from the man in the long black coat. Um, the other really interesting thing is that line, you know, someone is out there beating on a dead horse. Now we all know what that means. That, that is, you know, beating a dead horse. You're repeating something, you're repeating something, you're repeating something, uh, ceaselessly. And it's been said, and it's been said better. <laughs> so, you know, you're kind of doing, you know, a cliche of a cliche that was a better cliche, you know, when it was said a hundred years ago. Uh, that's beating on a dead horse, you know, making a point already made. And I think that connects to, you know, people don't live or die. People just float. I think it's getting back to that idea that some people, their lives are, are, are static to the point of almost being non-existent. Uh, and I, you know, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a harsh thing to say, uh, but they in turn react very harshly to the man in a long black coat. So it's, you know, again, you know, maybe the man in a long black coat is evil. And maybe there's some kind of interplay going on between, you know, someone being on the outer edge of human behavior, being alive, which is a scary idea. That's a big, that's a big, scary artistic idea that only, you know, a really cool, deep piece of art could get at. Um, and I don't think, you know, that, that, you know, similar to what Dylan says to Sun Pai or what he thinks about Sun Pai, you know, I don't believe like that, you know, and I don't believe like that either. Um, but then again, you know, you do maybe meet these people sometimes that do seem very alive and certain and their moral compasses seems extremely skewed, but it doesn't seem to bother them. And what does that mean? Where does that leave you? Um, you know, one thing's for sure. Maybe you don't forget them. Um, 
you know, and maybe you would prefer <laughs> to forget them. Um, but you know, yeah, I don't, I think, you know, maybe that's something else that was in the sun pie and in the long black coat thing, you know, like, you know, like who are these people? And, you know, I don't, I don't dig it. <laughs> like, I don't, I certainly, you know, don't dig somebody who's got some venomous thing going on, venomous worldview and sinister intentions. Uh, but yet they're somehow kinetic as well. Uh, and, you know, someone can be non, extremely nonviolent kinetic. It's, it's almost charisma, but you know, is there a crossover there again? Um, these are, you know, complex, you know, almost frightening ideas, uh, to, to consider. Um, and, and the song really goes, goes there, uh, goes there and back, um, and dives in, man. Um, and it is, you know, definitely, um, my favorite song on the album, uh, and I think it's probably a lot of people's favorite song on the album. And uh, the first time I saw Dylan in uh, 2009 at the um, I think it was Alice, Alice Theater, I believe. Um, yeah, great show. It wasn't the Beacon. I always want to say it was the Beacon, but it wasn't the Beacon. I'm pretty sure it was not. But it was the first time I saw him, and he did uh, The Man in Long Black Hole, and it was awesome. Great concert. I mean, I was like, you know, in awe, I guess, uh, in a way, um, just of like being able to see this guy uh, play live. And I never had, I never had before that. It was really fun. <laughs> it was a really good set list. Um, and yeah, that was one of the songs. It was cool. So moving along uh, to another extreme, uh, most of the time, um, yeah, as I kind of alluded to in my preamble, uh, to getting into the political world and, uh, getting into the album, um, it's a, this is a, this is a good song. It's, it's a good love song. It's a solid you know, lost love song. Um, but it's it, to me, um, I, I did like when I was listening to it, you know, it's funny. I had two different reactions actually. Um, last night I was preparing to record this and I listened to the album, like really, you know, taking notes and concentrating. And I, I, I just totally said like, what is this doing here? Especially after a man in the long black coat and, uh, all the deepness and darkness of that, of that tune. And most of the time isn't a, a, a lightweight song, but in terms of, you know, there being multiple threads, uh, to pull on in the songs on this album, I feel, even like I mentioned with, uh, where teardrops fall, there's so many ways to consider what that means. And it's two minutes and 30 seconds. Um, this is a uh, very straightforward, uh, you know, it's, you know, I don't think about her most of the time, you know, or you're probably thinking about her <laughs> or, you know, like it, it's still, you know, it's, you know, cause most of the time, but then the times you are totally overshadow the times you, you don't. So most of the time, who, you know, who cares about most of the time compared to the times where you're, you're thinking about her, you know, and, and that is, you know, again, like he's, he's great at, you know, getting those meanings percolating, you know, the meaning of you know, time and space and all these like very deep, you know, time going by and days going by and relativity. <clears throat> A lot of awesome arts about relativity, I feel. Um, so yeah. And it, again, it's, it's a very good song. Um, and when I was driving today, 
driving up to uh, Long Island. I listened to the album again. I was like, let me let me listen to it again and really try to get my my ducks in a row here or or whatever. As I beat a dead horse, using a cliche, uh, but I I thought that uh, uh, you know coming through my car stereo, yeah good ass song you know the atmosphere it's very atmospheric um so yeah i mean hey you know it's good it's a good tune man uh it is uh may you know would i maybe you know dignity possibly you, you know instead you know dignity after a man a man in a long black coat you know, you know like uh possibly like i, I could see where that really would have been a because again it's characterization going on there's one character in that song i mean one central character and then in dignity there's a rolling chain of characters and it's you know really an exciting tune um so yeah w- would i you know from a thematic standpoint would I swap out uh would i make that trade yeah i'd make that trade for sure um it reminds me of uh, make you feel my love on time out of mind again like you know that song too kind of comes out of like it's like oh (laughs) like this song's like pretty straight like you know this is like a pretty you know this song walks up to you and you can identify who it is by the face you know like the character of it and stuff like that um you know you know what i mean like uh and again, like that song is a huge, hugely successful cover, you know, covered by everybody. This song, I guarantee you, is the most covered song on Time Out of Mind. Um, and, you know, probably, you know, most of your hardcore Dylan heads wouldn't necessarily point to that as their being, you know, favorite song on the album. So, um, you know, uh, it did remind me of that a little bit. Um, I don't think I have much else to say about it. <laughs> Not to degrade it or anything like that. It's it's a nice, it's, it's a good, you know. We'll, we'll read a feeling I say. And by the way, because uh, I'll move on after reading this excerpt here. Um, demo is better. <laughs> I I did I heard the demo. Um, the demo is great. Again, you know, I, they weren't going to use the demo of just Dylan and the acoustic guitar and the harmonica because. You know, uh, the rest of the album's you know, produced in a certain way, um, certain like conceit going on uh, that that wouldn't have been into. But it's better, I think. There's like that happens. You know, there's a Springsteen song, um, "Count Not a Miracle," and when you hear it on, at least when I hear it on uh, the Rising, it it doesn't stand out. Uh, and then you know, I, I the demo is on unbelievably good like the demo is so good it's perfect it's amazing and and like hearing the demo it's shocking that like you know i could listen to the the rising and and uh and kind of like miss that song like kind of like yeah you know it's not my you know i'm a big nothing man guy i'm a big waiting on a sunny day guy you know like like those songs are are awesome on that album it happens like the demo man demo can really good sometimes <laughs> um uh, simplicity you know sometimes uh, i thought you know uh I, I talked about ruminations uh my last time i talked about an album connor ober's uh, album that came out i think in october and like there's a song gossamer thin uh just 
it doesn't need anything else but I mean the piano. Yeah, it just doesn't. You know, some songs, you know, uh, then some songs are perfect when they're produced. So figure it out. It's it's really, really hard to figure out. Though it does happen sometimes. Simplicity just serves a song better. Like, you know, doing a song acoustic versus doing it electric. One one method serves a song better. Uh, it can be you know, difficult to uh, figure out, obviously. Um, so, here we go. Uh, next song we tried was Most of the Time. This is page 185. It didn't have a melody, so I would have would just have to strum it till I found one. I never did come up with any definite melody, only generic chords, but Dan thought he heard something, something that turned into a slow, melancholy song. On this, Dan, he was contributing as much as any musician. He added layers of parts, and soon the song seemed to have some kind of attitude and purpose. Trouble was that the lyrics weren't putting me, putting me in there where I wanted to be. It wasn't busting out the way it should. I could have easily given up five or six lines if I had phrased the verses differently. For what we were doing, though, Dan's treatment was fine. But it was just like the other song. I began to feel differently about it as we moved along. It seemed to have more to do about time itself than it did with me. That's an interesting thing because I was kind of mentioning that. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, it, that's, I feel like that's the really complex thread of it. How, again, like the relativity of it all. Like, you know, if you're not thinking about a person a lot of the time, but the times you are thinking about them are so much more intense than the rest of your life. What does that mean? What do you make of that? How do you? weigh that time you know like that that's that hard to figure that out exactly um uh i felt that the sound of a clock like big ben should be ticking right through the tune at various levels a big band treatment would have been okay too in my mind i was beginning to hear me singing the song with the johnny otis orchestra a lot of lyrics needed to be shifted around and i began to feel blocked off Danny put as much ambience in the song as he could and he kept things from drifting but this wasn't a song that i really felt like like changing my grip on. You could change the lyrics, but the patterns were set. The tune was gaining weight by the minute and none of its clothes were fitting. It was all damned up and stagnant. We worked it to a standstill. Damn, would have to be a shaman to make this work. The song, which seemed unfinished to begin with, had just become more unfinished as we rolled on. I wondered what I had gotten myself into. I thought I'd left all this recording aggravation in the past. I didn't need this. It's not like I despised the song. I just didn't have the will to work on it. The lyrics were so full of cloudy meaning, and there was nothing in the song that was transforming itself, not even with all the ambience. After sitting around and talking for a while with Danny and Malcolm, I recorded the song Dignity. I'm sorry. Hmm. Apologies. Uh, oh, what am I doing? I'm like reading anyway. Bad job out of me. Uh, <laughs> I'm going on to Dignity, which again, Dignity. Yeah, man. And it's ironic that they worked on Dignity right after they worked on that. Um, it's funny. Uh, with, you know, like, I, I, do, I do feel like Dignity would have probably fit on there better. Uh, but it's a um, So, yeah, that's about, you know, all I really uh, had on uh, most of the time. Um, what good am I? Um, Alrighty. <laughs> Just getting my shit together here. Um, slow, almost a hesitant delivery by Bob. Uh, he seems self-conscious, uh, wading into this territory. And uh, this is a note that I made. Um, sounds like it should gather momentum, but it stays resolutely slow. The raising of his voice on the bridge is, is, is uh, subtle, um, but exciting. <laughs> that's like, I couldn't read what I wrote for a second. Uh, but that's because the song is so resolute about this 
dictates that the subtleties then like are heightened. Um, yes, uh, the stakes are high. Uh, if I turn my back while you silently die, high stakes. <laughs> like yes, like we're we're moving, and it's it's interesting how the song like settles uh, or or works its way up up to the stakes uh, of it being uh, quite high, and um, you know it reminds me uh, of. Uh, Ring them bells for having uh, moral concerns, uh, concern for a person. Again, uh, again, I, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, uh, but I, I do think it's important to continue to mention how much empathy there is on this album. <laughs> there, there's so much, um, so much care for another person's well-being um, with good intentions, you know, that maybe perhaps don't connect uh, ultimately. Uh, but are worth the effort of, of ringing the bell, so to speak, uh, to try. Um, yeah. So, uh, and that's kind of kind of uh, what I got out of there. I I do feel like this could have been a totally different song, though. <laughs> Even though, like, I I kind of like how it came out. Uh, this is kind of what I mentioned at the top too about um, how I feel about the album overall. Very strong album. Uh, but if I, you know, if I were to critique it, it'd be in like mo- moments such as this where this song could really bust out. Um, you know, what good am I? What good am I? Like very melodic, um, philosophical uh, questioning of the self, um, and could be bigger. I, I feel like uh, I, I feel like it's a big question, um, and the sound could have been bigger. Uh, could have been, you know, uh, something that swirled and built. Um, maybe, you know, or may- maybe maybe that wouldn't have worked, possibly. Uh, but, you know, what good am I? What good am I? You know, you can do anything with that. <laughs> you know, if you put, put yourself in a position uh, where you've written, you know, a good song, uh, especially a good chorus, man, uh, it can be anything. You know, because it'll work. If the song's good, you know, it'll work. Slow, fast, whatever. Uh, I think it's, we're talking about gradations of good, which is ironic, considering the title of the song. Um, I'm sorry, I, I always point out ironies that maybe aren't even really, like, that good. <laughs> you have ironies, it's like a tick, I apologize. But, you know, yeah, you're talking about gradations of good. It's a very good song. Uh, I think it does work, but, um, again, the album overall, let's talk about the album overall. I, I think in the absence of dignity and series of dreams, uh, not quite fitting, which I do agree with. Um, I, I love that song, but I, I don't, I, you know, I don't see how series of dreams hangs uh, with the beats you know, as, as a collection, really. Um, so uh, in the absence, in lieu of kind of those more, songs that are jauntier um and and really move and have like a momentum to them like you know doing the song like very slow you know the whole way um because there could have been like even really cool uh dynamic things going on where it could have been like really slow and then sped up and slowed back down again you know gotten louder and then quiet and contemplative and you know this what good am i really turning into like a 
very tortured, almost like, you know, thing like, you know, like what good am I, you know, if I am even doing this and still it's, it's not happening. Uh, you know, it's not even getting through, uh, even when I do make the effort, then, then what are you like left with? You know, uh, sometimes, um, the sound does, even though you, you know, a songwriter writes lyrics, um, the sound and performance, uh, no matter what you write or how good of a writer you are, sometimes those things are going to inform where the song goes uh, wider, you know, or bigger or, or not. And sometimes, you know, wider and bigger, not, not the best way to go. You know, it, it really does depend. But at this particular moment in the album, uh, I do feel like, you know, it could have been a little more. Uh, and I would have been right there into it um, for sure. Um, so let's refer to um, what Dylan had to say about what good am I? Uh, 195. When we began working on what good am I, I had a hunt for a melody, and after working on it for a suitable length of time, Danny thought he heard something. I thought that I was on something, but hadn't quite figured it out yet, or haven't quite found it yet. I was looking too hard. When it's right, you don't have to look for it. Maybe it was only a foot and a half away. I didn't know. But I exhausted my energy, and I thought I might as well just go with what Lanois liked, although it was too slow for my taste. Danny used layered rhythms to create a mood for this song. I liked the words, but the melody wasn't quite special enough. It didn't have any emotional impact. Setting aside our personal differences, we worked on this song for a while and completed it. I mean, that like sounds like so much like this was really difficult like making this album where it's just like you know what man fuck it like whatever you want to do like let's just do it like you know what i mean um like that line setting aside our personal differences it sounds like there was some serious friction going on um that maybe didn't even make the book possibly in a way i mean i think he really does like lay it out there pretty much but you know, I, I think there were some definite, you know, disagreements going on, uh, which <laughs> I mean, it's just really funny the way the way, it, you know, it, it's basically written in a certain way where there there's more to the story. You know what I mean? Like, but maybe you don't want to know. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, so um, disease of conceits um, is the next track. Um, and, uh, what Dylan writes about the song Chronicles is great. Um, you know, I uh, will certainly get to that. Um, I like this song a lot. Um, I almost feel like, um, it's an improvement on, uh, what good am I, although they're about, uh, different things, but they're both kind of about this internal, you know, investigation of values, um, which, which is fun <laughs> like it's a fun thing to do uh but they're both they're they're kind of both slow burners uh but the language of this song uh, where it works way more uh for me it's stronger um you know it'll turn you into a piece of meat i'll have you seeing double which i think could be a reference to, to drinking uh possibly if you want to take it that way illusions of grandeur um, think you're too good to die again the repetition returning to life and death and the stakes of these questions being high as they are in a lot of cases um 
figuring out these things about yourself, you know, that could be what's at stake. Not necessarily. Um, but if you don't know, you know, what you believe in, uh, you could be in some vulnerable situations uh, at certain moments um, and the stakes are high. And the constant affirmation of the stakes being high as it pertains to these questions, especially considering the, the kind of very slow burning nature of the arrangements, I think is important too. Um, uh, from, a, from a lyric standpoint, I think it helps, you know, keep the listener engaged uh as what's going on um and if that weren't uh enough song um i think there's like there guitar solo uh, i believe i should know this uh my dear readers um off the top of my head uh from a research standpoint but i i think that was a uh, mason ruffner uh, solo on disease of uh conceit um it's gorgeous uh, at the end of the song. Uh, and it almost uh, is a parallel to the uh, sax solo at the end of uh, Where Teardrops Fall. And it's just this aching, very similar, great solo moment of instrumentation um, at the end of the song. And, and kind of the way the guitar rolls off uh, the piano uh, at this moment, uh, to, uh, works. There's a magic quality to it. Um, uh, ghostly magic quality, uh, to it. Um, and it's, it's nice. It's a, it's a very, I, I like, uh, disease of, uh, conceits. Um, it's again, uh, and I do think the next song does this at well, <laughs> it does this as well, which is, uh, what was it you wanted? These songs have a way really creeping up on you uh, i feel like um and i shouldn't totally blow this point because <laughs> i think it was the centerpiece of what i was going to say about uh what was it you wanted um i, I do think like it was you know, that song really creeps up on you and steam and confidence as it goes but disease of conceit there there's you can like as a listener kind of like sit there and be like um you know i kind of got this song like, I got the title of the song, I got what the song is saying. But at the moment where you consider yourself and where you stand, you know, in this song, like where, where, your, where your sensibilities and where your values, basically, I know that's like a heavy word to use, um, but, you know, where all that kind of comes in, because, you know, it may seem simple to begin with, but when you bring yourself into it and consider, you know, whether you've been conceited and most people have, it's a universal feeling. Um, you know, and it has, it's, it's complicated. Feeling. It can do with vulnerability or it can do, you know, with substances you're ingesting or it can do with a combination of, of those things and more, um, you know, and where you might feel like, you know, you've been turned into a piece of meat at times. Uh, it, you know, may leave you feeling, you know, pretty emotional. Uh, but you know, it, by the song, you know what I mean. Like, it, I, it, there's been times, you know, where I've listened to it at a certain moment, um, where I'm there and listening, and you know, it, it, it's gotten to me like, for sure. And it's been like, you know. <laughs> Conceit is a disease, and it has a way of destroying 
your, your, your perceptions of people, which, you know, you can go on and go on your merry way perceptions. Um, but you know, it can affect your relationships and it ultimately hurts you too. Um, so it's just kind of acidic thing, uh, quality and everybody deals with it at some point, you know, I, I think, um, humbleness is easier said than done. Uh, so my thoughts on that song let's see what bob thought seven the song disease of conceit definitely has gospel overtones again events might trigger a song sometimes they might start the motor recently the popular baptist preacher jimmy swagger had been defrocked by the assembly of god leadership for refusing to stop preaching Jimmy was Jerry Lee Lewis's first cousin, was a big TV star, and the news came as a shock. He'd been linked to, linked to a prostitute, caught on camera leaving her motel room in sweatpants. <laughs> Don't think about that. That detail. Sweatpants. Just the sweatpants. You know, yeah, just sweatpants. You're wearing sweatpants, man. You know, like, <laughs> Swagger was ordered to vacate the pulpit uh, temporarily. You know what it is about sweatpants? I'll tell you what it is about sweatpants and why sweatpants are so funny context sweatpants can never be holy it can never be holy let me let me say that i'm pretty confident of that yeah he wept in public and asked forgiveness but still was told to stop preaching for a while he couldn't help himself though and quickly went back to preaching as if nothing had happened and they defrocked him the story was strange swagger clearly wasn't in good shape hadn't looked at the road the story didn't make any sense i'm gonna skip actually underlined um, when he starts talking about conceit specifically right here. Conceit is not necessarily a disease. It's more of a weakness. A conceited person could be set up easily and bought down accordingly. Let's face it, a conceited person has a fake sense of self-worth and inflated opinion of himself. A person like this can be controlled and manipulated completely if you know what buttons to push. So in a sense, that's what the lyrics are talking about song rose up until I could read the look in its eyes. In the quiet of the evening, I didn't have to hunt, hunt far for it. As always, there were a few verses left behind. There's a whole lot of people dreaming tonight about the disease of conceit. A whole lot of people screaming tonight about the disease of conceit. I'll hump you and I'll dump you and I'll blow your house down. I'll slice into your cake before I leave town. Pick a number, take a seat with the disease of conceit. Now, yeah, there's a couple of things I want to get to about about the this verse that didn't make it. First of all, you know, I kind of alluded to, um, I don't know if I'm going to do Dignity, um, which has more uh, lyrics, I think, that, that he didn't use. Um, but food comes up. <laughs> He's talking about food a lot, you know, in, in, the, lyri- in the verses he left out, you know, in political world uh, you know it's slicing through uh you know like i, I think like cheese i believe it was I, I can't remember off the top of my head uh and then yeah this is uh, i'm gonna slice into your cake i think there was like another food like mention so i was like you know he either had food like he was working in some food metaphors into his songwriting having a little fun with the reader and whether they would notice all these <laughs> food metaphors coming up. Cause I, I could see like, like screwing around a little bit with this. Cause you know, people are so into like, you know, unused lyrics and outtakes of songs and stuff like that. And he's throwing in this like food stuff. I, I don't know. Or maybe it's just coincidental. Uh, it's not like, I mean, those are like strong, strong lines. Um, 
you know, I'll hump you and I'll dump you and I'll blow your house down. I mean, it's pretty there, you know, like it's pretty um, in your face. I I, I was so far to say. Um, And if that had been in the song, it it makes the song uh, different, maybe like too, like maybe like too distracting, I, I suppose. But those are pretty like they're striking me as raw raw lines uh for sure um so yeah mo- moving along um i have the book in front of my face right now um we're gonna go to what was it you wanted as I, <laughs> I went to the wrong place i'll just start with bob the song what was it you wanted was also a quickly written one I heard the lyric and melody together in my head and it played itself in the minor key. You have to be economical writing a song like this. If you've ever been the object of curiosity, then you know what the song is about. It doesn't need much explanation. Folks who are soft and helpless sometimes make the most noise. They can obstruct you in a lot of ways. Pointless trying to resist them or deal with them by force. (laughs) Sometimes you just have to bite your upper lip and put sunglasses on. Songs like this are strange dogs. They don't make good companions. I, I think that's true about this song, actually. Because this is a song that le- doesn't leave you feeling like you have a companion. <laughs> it leaves you feeling a little empty, I would say, um, quite effectively. I think that's the intention. Again, there are extra verses. What was it you wanted? Can I be of any use? Can I do something for you? Do I have enough juice? Wherever you're off to, one thing you should know, you still got 700 miles, still yet to go. Song almost wrote itself. It just descended upon my head. Maybe a couple of years earlier, I might have rejected it and never finished it. Not now, though. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing again, I was mentioning it. Um, this song, by the end, is full power, and it almost seemed like he was picking up confidence uh, while writing the song, like line by line, verse by verse. Um, the song I wrote, the song sounds so lonely. The instrumentation is so restrained that it sounds like Dylan is being accompanied by ghosts. Is this whole thing going backwards? Nice recall to ring them bells. Time is running backwards and so is the bride. That seemed connected to me um, in, in, a, in a way, a uh, hard way, because they're very different songs. You know, One's about very big uh, cultural empathy, I feel like, or not so much cultural empathy, but just recognizing needs of individuals among everyone is an individual. Everyone could use the bells ringing uh, once, once in a while. Um, uh, so, yeah, and this song is more about, I feel like, a personal relationship uh, or some sort of relationship, but it seems more interior-focused uh, with, with, with the songwriter uh, in question. Uh, but even still, um, that whole backwards thing, like it did seem uh, to connect uh, there between the two songs. Um, yeah. I wrote, the song gets so much better on the back half that you get excited at how much you underestimate it. Uh, and that, that is how I felt too, uh, listening to it. Um, and not underestimating it again in the sense of, because um, I feel like this is like a repeated thing on the album songs and you know the implications of things creeping up on you uh, you know in a good way uh in a way where maybe something you thought you knew uh about what you were listening to is challenging you uh you 
can see that. Um, so underestimated, I mean, like, oh, this is like, the song isn't working right from the start. And then, it, then it's working the entire time. But it, 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 it kind of transforms into being, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the, hmm, let's say, intricate maybe one way, but I don't know. Just scope of it widens and widens, let's say. Um, but you're, it's funny, you're still in the same place you were. That's where it leaves you. I feel like like you're in the same place, but what you, what you thought you were looking at has new features, you know? Um, you know, like looking at a canyon, and the sun's coming up or setting, and it changes what you're looking at, something like that. Uh, the final harmonica part is so unlike the joyous harmonica from the 60s. It sounds like it's calling for help. No more Pied Piper uh, finishing the song and leading the listener down somewhere, uh, you know, into you know, some kind of, and again, like, you know, those are, yeah, no one's bad or bagging on Mr. Tambourine Man here. I'm just saying in a very satisfactory way, really going for something different uh, and nailing it. I feel like, uh, like, cause yeah, even the harmonica, obviously, yeah, you know, probably maybe using a harmonica in a different key, uh, different type of harmonica possibly, but I, I just love how different it sounds uh, compared to <clears throat> the Dylan harmonica sound. You might have been familiar with it, especially at the end of the song, man, because it, it just comes through almost like a train whistle passing by a very lonely train. Someone's lonely, either the train is lonely or the person on the side of the tracks is lonely, but there's some kind of loneliness going on um, passing by. Yeah, I love I love that part of the song, and it's hard not to. I mean, I feel like you know you'd have to be uh, really just not a fan of what's going on if you've been listening in sequence to the album uh, to not be affected by that harmonica at the at the end of the song. Um, also, something else I wrote, I get a sense of confusion um, uh, and a, tr a troubling confusion because there doesn't seem to be answer to it um when i was giving you what you wanted what was that a sense of not even understanding what had made the relationship work what was it you wanted when you were kissing my cheek it indicates that something of value had been given at some point but what was it <laughs> and that's an interesting thing because again it, it challenges on, on, on another there's a simple question of what was it you wanted of, you know, I'm not giving it to you, or I didn't give it to you back then. Uh, but that complicates it, saying that there had been a kiss on the cheek. So it could also be as interpreted as what was it you wanted that I didn't give you, but also what was it you wanted when I was giving you what you wanted, because I didn't know what it was. And I know that might be like, yeah, that might sound like a little out there, but you can kind of like think about it that way. And relationships and your recall of them can be that complicated because uh, relationships are very, very complicated. Uh, they tend to be. Uh, yes. Um, so shooting star, man. Um, well, I'm just going to start out because I, I did write something um, in response to shooting star. 
Apologies. I, this was like the one. I guess it was late at night. I didn't do my homework. <laughs> I want to talk about not so much as when they're recording it. I mean, he does. He has an interesting uh, an anecdote about uh, he wanted to record it with somebody, um, and she wasn't working. Uh, she wasn't singing at the club on that particular night, which is very. Uh, Interesting, uh, Irma, Irma Thomas. Um, but I just want to talk about the writing process. Um, Shooting Star was one of the songs I wrote in New Orleans. I felt like I didn't write it so much as I inherited it. It would have been good to have a horn man or two on it, a throbbing hum that mingled into the music, but we had to cut it with what we had. Brian on guitar, Willie on drums, Tony on bass, and Lanois on Omnicord, a plastic instrument that sounds like an auto harp. Me playing guitar and harmonica. The song came to me complete, full in the eyes, like I'd been traveling on the garden pathway of the sun and just found it. It was illuminated. I'd, been, I'd seen a shooting star from the backyard of our house, or maybe it was a meteorite. In the big parlor room where we cut it, there was no air conditioning, so we had to keep going outside between takes. But that was the way I liked it anyway. I don't like air conditioning to start with. It's hard to cut songs in air-conditioned rooms where all the good air is gone. In the courtyard, it was raining soup. Um, I also would like, I believe, yes, I just want to talk a little, I, I want to read, because I, I find this part, but you got to understand, Dark, Dark Eyes is one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. Uh, I love it so much, and I, I really love the connection, because um, they're, they are, they're not just in the way they were made. They were made... Um, as the closing sentiment of an album that was in the process of being made, uh, both of them, even though they're very, very different songs, um, and they're both awesome songs. Um, so I got back to New Orleans with a clear head. I'd finish up what I started with Lanois, even write him a couple of songs I never would have written otherwise. One was Man in the Long Black Coat, and the other was Shooting Star. I'd only done that once before. I did it for the producer Arthur Baker. Baker had helped me produce the album Empire Burlesque a few years earlier in New York City. All the songs were mixed and finalized, except Baker kept suggesting that we should have an acoustic song at the end of the record, that it would bring everything to the right conclusion. I thought about it, and I knew he was right, but I didn't have anything. The night the album was being completed, I told him I'd see what I could come up with, saw the importance of it. I was staying at the Plaza Hotel on 59th Street and come back after midnight, went through the lobby and headed upstairs. As I stepped out of the elevator, a call girl was coming towards me in the hallway. Pale yellow hair wearing a fox coat, high-heeled shoes that could pierce your heart. She had blue circles around her eyes, black eyeliner, dark eyes. She looked like she had been beaten up and was afraid she'd get beat up again. In her hand, crimson purple wine in a glass. I'm just dying for a drink, she said as she passed me in the hall. She had a beautifulness, but not for this kind of world. Poor wretch, doomed to walk this hallway for a thousand years. Later that night, I sat at a window overlooking Central Park and wrote the song Dark Eyes. I recorded the next night with only an acoustic guitar and it was the right thing to do. It did complete the album. New York City wasn't New Orleans, though. It wasn't the city of astrology. It didn't have any mysteries lurking in its vast recesses. Mysteries built when and by whom no man could tell. New York City was a city where you could be frozen to death in the midst of a busy street and nobody would notice New Orleans wasn't like that. I think what he's getting at there, too, in relation to Shooting Star, is he's explaining why the songs are different. <laughs> he's explaining 
how Dark Eyes um, is born out of kind of an indifference. And New, York, New York City is certainly indifferent. Uh, a cruelty um, um, that must be answered in equal measure by this kind of sal- salvation, really. I think, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a big song. Um, but when he, when he's talking about astrology and mystery, uh, that sounds way more like shooting stars. So I think he's subtly, uh, telling the reader that place informs writing to a huge degree <laughs> where the intention is the same, right? The intention is to write material for an album in progress to possibly complete that album. Uh, but the two different places dictated, uh, you know, two wildly different songs coming to life. And in Long Black Coat is certainly a swampy song. And, you know, you could definitely see that coming out of New Orleans. So it's an interesting um, thing. You know, Dark Eyes is a great song, but there you see, like, a difference, possibly, between uh, how they were born, um, these songs. Um, so I'm going to just write. Or <laughs> I'm not going to write. Uh, I can hear my scratching So I wrote kind of this response. Bear with me because it doesn't always, it doesn't kind of turn into sentences for for a little, for a little while. Um, So sweet little song that is somehow epic too. Joyful harmonica at just having had these relationships to begin with at all. It's also fleeting, and sometimes the people you meet are like stars slipping into and out of your constellation. Breaking into another world, a world I never knew. Perfect lyrics. Bridge is not perfectly connected thematically, but again, you know, with the verses, but again puts across an urgency to the moment, you know, which has been happening throughout the album and right down to the end. Nails that element the last temptation, the last account. But then tomorrow will be another day. Yet that's apocalyptic on its own because another day simply continues your journey away from this person. In this way, the usually hopeful cliche of tomorrow is another day is rebuffed because tomorrow is another day without the star you held in your hand. Completely says these relationships are not only more important than our place in the political world of track number one, they are the only thing making form and sense out of that madness. And after a disease of conceit and what was it you wanted, songs respectively dealing with internal and external confusion, vulnerability, and I believe you know, a sense of sadness at the end. Uh, shooting star is a reminder about the beauty of relationships the way we feel grace through the person, the grace we can never get through our own conceit or a warped culture bent on justifying its vapid values. It's interesting to note that what was it you wanted and shooting star seem to be about the same thing, a relationship being over, but one is driven by disillusionment and the other is driven by acceptance. And you can hear the difference in an album concerned with morality Perhaps that leaves the listener with a choice and there's no new love or bullshit hope waiting on the other side of that choice. There's just reality, the political world waiting when the disc stops spinning. Um, and yeah, I, you know, speaking uh, ex- 
extemporaneously is a difficult thing. And I, I did uh, write that response uh, to the song that eventually turned into sentences and stuff like that. And it's a song that has always meant uh, a lot to me. Um, and I think that's why I was moved uh, to write uh, that uh, while listening to it last night. So, my dear friends, um, it's been fun. Uh, it's great to do another episode. It's been too long. I do think um, I'm also going to do episodes just dealing with individual songs. Uh, maybe even doing stuff like that, just writing, <laughs> you know, like a very freeform response to songs I hear um, could be kind of a fun thing. Shorter. I'm sure this is a pretty long. I was really, <laughs> I guess, off topic when I started. But, you know, I had to clear, you know, I had to clear the microphone or whatever um, and get going. But, oh, mercy, uh, when you really look at it in totality, you know, I, I know I know, I said at the beginning, you know, like, ah, you know, maybe it's between very good and great, um, you know, and maybe there's some things about it that could be better, you know, that I mentioned are just different, that maybe could have uh, done some different things to it. Uh, but when you really, like, look at these songs, uh, I'm left feeling like, it's all, it's an unbelievably good album that stands up with um, anything that he's done before. Since um, a lot of uh, critics do feel that way about it, um, but you know, it's it's it's. Uh, I think he puts across a similar sentiment in in Chronicles, where he's saying like, yeah, you know, he could have maybe done some different things, you know, sonically. I think he mentions you know varying the rhythms within the songs and stuff like that but I, I do think you know he ends up feeling uh, similar to what a lot of listeners feel that like despite it somehow there's some some kind of magic to this album you know that is really swept up and captured completely in shooting star it's, it's closing uh number um so ma magical and you know what maybe magic is uh better than and better or in a strange way um you know rather have the magic maybe than, than perfection uh, possibly because uh, it is it's pretty pretty magical album. Um, so, uh, my dear listeners, um, thank you so much uh, for tuning in to this episode of Strange Currencies. Uh, who knows when I'll do another one? I've certainly uh, uh, left you high and dry uh, at certain moments, uh, but may maybe another one uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, I certainly hope so. Um, wherever you are, wherever you're listening. Uh, Wishing you peace and love. Why not? <laughs> Have a good one.